Hello, and welcome to a new episode of the Mo Money Podcast. This is episode 51, and I am your host, Jessica Morehouse. Thank you so much for joining me for this very special episode. I say it's very special because I got to interview one of my all-time dream guests, Gail Vazoxlade. She, I mean, if you don't know who Gail is, then it's because you've been li- living under a rock because she's pretty much like Cher. You just need to say Gail, and most people know who I'm talking about. She is the author of 13 personal finance books, including Debt Free Forever, Never Too Late, It's Your Money, Money Rules, and my favorite right now, Money Talks. She's also been the host of several TV shows, including Till Debt Do Us Part, Princess, and Money Moron. But before I get to me and Gail's interview, I'm excited to share that support for this episode of the Mo Money Podcast comes from Wealthsimple, the fastest growing automated investing service in Canada. Wealthsimple uses smart technology to help you create and manage a diversified investment portfolio, saving you time and money. And since you're an awesome Mo Money Podcast listener, you get a bonus $50 when you sign up at wealthsimple.com slash Jessica Morehouse. Check out the show notes for this episode at jessicamorehouse.com slash 51 for more information. Thank you, Gail, for joining me on the show today. My pleasure. Great. Um, I'm super excited to talk to you because not only are you kind of the main uh, money guru in Canada, I was telling people uh, that I know that, oh, I'm going to be talking to Gail, and they know you by the first name. So that's a pretty cool thing. By my first name. That's (laughs) right. Everywhere I go, people shout, Gail. I'm kind of like Cher. Yeah, I think that's pretty cool. Oh, but yeah, I'm I was counting even... on you people. I'm counting on you guys to take over from me because you know I'm stepping away from money. No. Oh yeah. What will yeah. we do without you? Well, no, no. Because the thing is, I've said it and I've said it and I said it, Jessica, and 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 people need to hear it from more than one person because mm-hmm. one person saying it all the time. I'm just like a drone now. <laughs> But still, like, honestly, um, you were a big reason why I got so interested in my personal finances. Mm -hmm. I watched uh, Till Debt Do Us Part religiously when I first moved out and had two pennies to, I didn't even have two pennies to rub together, so I learned a lot from you. I'm glad that's so, and I'm glad that there is this whole new generation of young people who aren't afraid of talking about money, you know, that's the thing that I'm probably most proud of is the number of people who are now willing to open up their own personal circumstances and say to people, okay, you know what, I've made mistakes, but here's how I fixed them and you can too. Absolutely. And, and I think that's what's really exciting too. And, and not just because I know a lot of people who are personal finance bloggers and stuff like that, but I think because there are a lot of us kind of out there that are more open when we enter, you know, friendships and relationships, we're more open. So then they feel more comfortable talking about their money. And it's just kind of a ripple effect, I think. Absolutely. Hopefully. Um, But before we kind of talk about your book, which I've read and I absolutely love, and we'll talk about that um, uh, later in the episode, I want to kind of give uh, some listeners who maybe, you know, maybe some of my American listeners or just some people that are just starting to get interested in personal finance, um, a little bit more about your background, because you have a very interesting background, how you fell into the personal finance world. So I'd like to kind of chat about that with you. How did, how did you fall into this kind of line of work? Okay. So what happened was I was working for a consulting company and they told me if I wanted to make more money, the only way to do it was to go into sales. So I Mm -hmm. did that and I puked for a year. (laughs) <laughs> I hated cold calling so much. I'd get up in the morning and I'd toss my cookies and have a cup of tea and go to work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 
the thing is, is that what it did, first of all, I was, I was ticked. I was ticked that they wouldn't give me more money based on mm-hmm. the work I was already doing. And so I was vengeful in my desire to make the next thing work. Mm-hmm. And it was probably putting the anger to work for me mm-hmm. that kept me pushing through signing all those letters. I mean, that's where I got, I have a very flamboyant signature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's where I got the signature was signing all those cold calling letters because I would send out a hundred of those every week. Mm-hmm. Right? And you know, when you sit there and you sign a hundred letters, you get a signature. Yeah. And um, it was probably that anger that, you know, I'll show you mm-hmm. that pushed me through it. As part of that, I won a contract to design an RSP training booklet for a financial institution. They were piloting this. They had just brought on a new sales force, and they wanted to train them. And so they were doing a pilot project around RSPs. And so, you know, they had a control group, and they had the group that they trained, and the group that they trained did remarkably better than the group that they didn't train. And so then they tendered out the project for every single product that they sold, and I won the tender. Mm-hmm. And so I sat there and I wrote product knowledge and sales training material for every single product that financial institution sold. Interesting. Hello, financial <laughs> education. Yeah. You know, they shipped me their technical manuals. They shipped me their procedure manuals, the, the legal stuff and their marketing material. And I gave them what they needed, and in the process, I got a financial education. And then, you know, it, that was, it was a matter of writing a couple of books to sort of give myself some credibility, self-published the first one, mm-hmm. got a publisher for the rest, and um, it took off from there. And, you know, eventually I just threw it all away, tossed it over my left shoulder, moved to the mm-hmm. country, gave up everything for two years. Wow. And um, sort of disappeared off the earth. And um, my husband at the time supported me for those two years, and then he lost his job. And it was clear one of us was going to have to go to work, so both of us would have to be looking. Mm-hmm. And I sort of threw my arms open to the universe and said, okay, so I need a job. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do next, so why don't you show me? I got mm-hmm. a couple of emails asking me if I wanted to host a TV show. <laughs> oh, isn't that nice and convenient? <laughs> so that's how that all happened. I want that to happen. Like, all right, I'm ready. Come email me. <laughs> the thing is, is that, you know, I honestly believe you get what you ask for. I think mm-hmm. one of the biggest problems people have is they won't ask. Yeah. And so not asking means you are accepting no as the answer. Absolutely. So this is one of the things I learned from sales. Okay? Yeah. You may get 99 no's, but if you get one yes, that's one more yes than you would have gotten if you had asked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I totally agree with you just because um, uh, my husband is a freelancer. He's been a freelancer for, uh, I mean, almost close to a decade. And when we moved to uh, Toronto about three years ago, we didn't know anybody here. And he had to kind of start his whole business from scratch. And he right. learned a lot. And a lot of it was just kind of putting himself out there and letting people know, hey, I'm hey, available I'm to do work for you. Exactly. And it's, I mean, and that's kind of how he's built his business and it's yep. yeah it's it's something that is so simple that lots of people are either afraid to do or they don't know how to do it and the thing is is that it's that fear okay mm-hmm. it's very often it's that fear it's i don't want to ask i don't want people to think i'm pushy be pushy yeah if you want something you have to ask for it if you're not pushy enough 
to get what it is you want. And I say this all the time about a consumer behavior. You go mm-hmm. into a bank and you need something, you ask for it and you push really hard. I mean, I remember when I set up my last, you know, I've moved my account several times because I have moved many mm-hmm. times. Mm-hmm. And the last time I went into a financial institution and they sent me my checks and my checks were all, no, it wasn't the checks, it was my credit card. They sent me my credit card and the name on the credit card was wrong. Mm-hmm. They misspelled it. And I walked into the branch and I said, and so you will waive the fee on this for a year. Mm-hmm. And they did. And then they did something else wrong. And I said, and now my account fees will be gone for the next six months. And they did. Yeah. And every time they did something wrong, I didn't just say, okay, I forgive you, because they never forgive us. Nope. Okay, I said, okay, but you have to compensate me for my um, inconvenience. And every mm-hmm. time they did. So the thing is, is that we have to learn to ask. We have to value the business that we deliver to service providers and producers and say, okay, I am the customer. Give me what I want. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, that reminds me. Recently, I, I did that with um, a new credit card I got. I asked them to waive the fee. And it was a bit of a struggle. I'm like, you know, I have a lot of money with you. You can waive the $40 credit yeah. card fee. I have other credit cards with you. And they did. And then I wouldn't, they wouldn't have done that had I not asked. You just Absolutely. have to kind of think to ask. Absolutely. Well, so how did the, so you got the email to start your own show, which became a huge hit and you had it for like seven years. I did nine seasons of Till Debt, uh, mm-hmm. almost four seasons of Princess. It was mm-hmm. an odd number, so it was weird. It was three and a half seasons of Princess and two seasons of Money Moron. So wow. all in all, I was um, making television for about nine years. Wow. And you had no experience being on TV before no. that. And, and so... You see, the thing was, is that the last time I left money, mm-hmm. I left money because I was bored. I thought mm-hmm. I had said it all. I had been Chatelaine's financial columnist for eight years. You know, I called Rhoda up and I said, sweetie, I have nothing else to say. You need to find <laughs> somebody else now because I've said everything I want to say in the way I want to say it. And now I'm just repeating myself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after almost 100 columns, that was absolutely true. Yeah. And so... This idea that, you know, it now becomes incumbent on me as a writer to come up with one more fresh way to say something I've already said three times. I'm mm-hmm. tired. Yeah. So, so I left the city and left behind that whole career. But the unique thing about going back to it was that I wasn't going back to just being a personal financial person. I was going back to an uh, industry I knew nothing about, and so I was back on a really steep learning curve, and that's mm. what I love. I yep. love being on a learning curve, and the steeper the learning curve, the more butterflies in my stomach, the happier I am. Mm-hmm. So it didn't kind of scare you, but if anything, it motivated you to just conquer that next step. Well, and you know, it was all about, you know, what is it about television? I mean, it, it, mm-hmm. I, people just have no idea what goes into making a television show. You know, um, every entrance I made through a doorway took an hour and a half to shoot. <laughs> really? Yes. That 20 oh my seconds gosh. took an hour to an hour and a half to shoot because you have to set it up to shoot it one way and then you have to set it up to shoot it another way. You have to shoot it three ways. And if you get the camera guy in the picture, you have to shoot it again. And, you know, you would think after we had done a hundred, hi, I'm Gil Vazoxade, let me drop my bag and have a quick look around, that we would have it down pat, but no two houses are the same. 
Wow. And what I'm kind of curious as like, you know, I've seen a lot of the episodes you've shot. How, uh, like, do you, how did you know what to tell them? Like, was, did you come up with like uh, all of your tips beforehand? Did you just kind of go in there and see like how real or how scripted or Okay, so it was very, was very real. And mm-hmm. it was, none of it was scripted because I can't remember lines. So <laughs> I think it would be next to impossible. Uh, besides which, it changes in the moment, okay? Mm-hmm. So I just have to say something different and uh, if you want it to be real. And I think one of the reasons why Till Death was so popular was because it was so real. It was so yeah. obviously real. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But what we would do is, you know, the directors would go out and they would shoot uh, what we call B-roll. So they mm-hmm. would shoot two or three days with whomever I was working with and they would sort of get the story uh, under their belt, and then we would have a story meeting, and we'd all sit around and talk about, okay, what are the likely issues? What are we going to go for here? So, you know, sometimes we were talking about um, a whole heap of credit card debt, or sometimes there was a payday loan, or sometimes there was um, no insurance, or, you know, so there were always, we went looking for what the issues were, and we would come up with some challenges that we thought would bring home uh, the points we were trying to bring home to them. And on mm-hmm. more than one occasion, I would get in and I would do that first interview where mm-hmm. I sat down with them and had that very intimate chat. And then the next thing that would happen is we'd all pile into our car mm-hmm. because we needed to revamp the challenge. Oh. Because <laughs> the challenge we had originally come up with wasn't born out None of the information that was originally gathered because people were very different with me than they were with directors. Directors went out with an agenda. I go in with no agenda. And so I am like a clean slate for them to write all over and they write different notes on me. Mm -hmm. And so we have to deal with the notes that they've written all over my blackboard. And so very often, you know, they would say things to me they had never said to the director. And I, you know, never batted an eye because like, this is the first time I'm hearing this. I had no clue this was coming, and I just tell them what I thought. <laughs> yeah, which is why I think the show is so popular. You're yeah. very tell it like it is, yeah. which is great. So you're like, this is what you need to do. And and when I'm watching it too, especially watching Princess, which just like irked me so much. I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> come on! You have a, like I watched this one episode recently with this girl who was going in debt because she, like, hired a private driver. I'm like, what are you oh, doing? I know. Wasn't that rich? I'm like, you're 20 years old. What's wrong? Who has a driver? Take an Uber. I mean, come on. Yeah, back then but there yeah. was no Uber. Uh, oh, you know, you okay. know, Take the TTC. I don't know. It's just, like, boggled oh, no, my she mind. She was that... too good for public transportation. She was uh, way too good for public transportation. That just, that's crazy to me. Just crazy, but I don't know. She's probably sure. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, she was entertaining, that's for sure. One question I am, because I do remember a while, like years ago, when I was really into Till Debt, and then there was an episode that was kind of um, a recap of some people that you'd helped, and this is a couple years later. Like, do you have any contact with some of those people, or do you know how some of them are doing? Okay. Everyone always was, hopes for the success stories, and they're doing okay. That was done on the web, though. It wasn't done on yeah, the TV show. that's right. That's because right. the network would never let us go back and make a TV show because that's the number one thing I always get, which is why I'm clarifying it because people will go, what, what, there's a follow-up? <laughs> nope, there was no follow-up. It was just... Right, it was on the web. Episodes. Yeah. 
And yeah, we've kept in touch with we kept in touch with some. Then the network went back, not the network. The production company went back and found people that were willing to come back on the air and talk about stuff. Uh, but I've kept in contact with a few, not a lot, but a few mm-hmm. people. And you know, just like everybody else, their lives changed too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just things happen, and hopefully, they'll kind of take some of the lessons you learned and roll with them. But. Well, um, that was one of the reasons why in the early episodes of Till Debt. Mm-hmm. Um, the network always wanted me to do the debt repayment plan and the budget. Oh. And so if you watch the seasons one and two, maybe even halfway through three, you mm-hmm. will see that I present them with the debt repayment plan and I present them with the budget. Mm-hmm. And then I said, you know what? Okay, so these people need to buy into this. They need to do it so they can learn to do it. Mm-hmm. And so by season three, I think, it's a long time ago now, Jessica. Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> uh, by season three, I had them making the budgets and the debt repayment plans, and I was coaching them through what was right and what was wrong in them. But there was an enormous amount of pushback from mm-hmm. the network when we started doing that because the network didn't want anything to detract from my expertness. Right. And it was like, I don't care, you know, like that's not what this is about. This is yeah, about teaching people on their feet. Exactly. Okay, so you know, but they dressed me, they even tried to send me to a voice coach. What? Or, yep. Before we started shooting the actual season one, mm-hmm. they hooked me up with a voice coach who was supposed to help eliminate my accent. Why would they want to do that? Well, when, lovely. Me, when she spoke to me on the phone and I said, okay, so I'm not sure why I'm talking to you, but so tell me what this is all about. And she yeah. told me and I told her to F off. <laughs> and then I told them to F off because I thought it was <laughs> just the height of rudeness. Yeah. And as always, what I said was, you don't want my accent, find someone else to do this job. Mm-hmm. And then you got the job anyway. because. Well, <laughs> oh, my gosh. I know. Yeah. Well, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, next, I want, so thanks so much for ta- answering some of my questions because I'm a huge fan. I know there's lots of huge fans listening right now. But next, I want to talk about your latest book, Money Talks, which I love. I've been reading it every day on my commute to work and back. And then it's I've been. Fabulous. I love it. Absolutely. Yeah. I just love how, well, first, I've never read a financial book like this, which I really like the structure of stories. Mm-hmm. Um, that I can relate to, or I know friends that have had those situations, and almost every day after I, you know, read a couple chapters, I'll come home and talk to my husband Josh about one of the topics, and then we have a really interesting conversation <laughs> that we learn a lot about each other. That we're like, oh, I can't believe we've never talked about this before. This is probably something we should talk about. So, well, first, what gave you the the idea to come up with a book that was um, basically very scenario based instead of here's what you should do. Okay, so what happened was I had already written all the process books. Mm-hmm. Okay, I did Debt Free Forever, yep. which is make a budget, create a debt repayment plan, set some goals, figure out how to save. I did Never Too Late, which is all about retirement. Mm-hmm. How do you figure out where you are and where you want to go and what steps you have to take to get there? Um, Saving for School was about RESPs and how to use them properly. Money Smart Kids was about um, teaching your children about money. Little tiny book, very easy for any parent mm-hmm. to wrap their head around. Um, it's Your Money is the financial planning book, specifically targeted at women, but if boys read it, their penises don't fall off, so it's okay. 
but it's targeted specifically to women because women have very unusual timelines. Their timelines are different than men's timelines, and so the financial planning part of it has to be different because, for example, um, when a woman gets divorced, her cost of, mm-hmm. um, not her cost of living, but her quality of life goes down, mm-hmm. uh, whereas a guy's goes up when... Uh, really? Yes. Women are more likely to become disabled than men. Men die. And women mm-hmm. get sick. Oh. Okay. And so there are all these things that set us apart. And so we need financial planning that addresses those things. So that's what It's Your Money is about. Okay. So I did all of those things. Mm-hmm. And then the next book that came along, I wanted to write a book for the generation of people who were just graduating from college or just going into college or university, just going into their first jobs. Okay? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that's how money rules came along mm-hmm. because it's all the common sense of money. So this is the crap your parents should have told you. <laughs> and if they didn't, here I will tell you. So it's things like renting is not a waste of money. Mm-hmm. Okay, It's things like you have to save. Um, it's things like embrace anticipation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there are 272 rules, I think, in the new edition, and um, they are all the things I would tell anybody who came to me and said, okay, so what do I need to know about money? You need to know these things that are not strictly financial. They're not mm-hmm. process. It's not how to make a budget. It's that mm-hmm. you need a budget. Mm-hmm. Okay? And so I had done it all, Jessica. Yeah, you had. That's okay? like full-on so course load. I had covered all those bases. The thing I hadn't covered was the thing I was getting so many questions on. Mm-hmm. How do I tell my sister? How do I tell my mother? How do I get my partner on board? How do I <laughs> talk about this? How do I make them understand this? Okay? Mm-hmm. And so I was getting loads and loads of questions on that, and so I pitched it to HarperCollins and said, let me write this book. And the most popular blog on my website every week was the this and that, mm-hmm. which was the question and answers. And so that's in essence mm-hmm. what drove this last book was all the people who write to me and say, okay, so you know, uh, my sister said she needed some help. I felt sorry for her. I told her she could sleep on my couch for a couple of months till she got herself together. It's been eight months and she's still there. How do I tell my sister to get off my couch? Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother t- has just informed me that I am her retirement plan. I can't do this. How do I tell her I can't do this? Mm-hmm. Uh, my child keeps hitting me up for money. I love her. I want to support her. I want her to know that I will do anything. I don't want to give her any more money. I don't think it's helping. What do I tell her? Mm-hmm. All those kind of awkward situations well, that they, will they come up in everyone's awkward, lives. Except that, you know, you have to talk about this stuff. Yes. So when I did the book tour across the country, one of the things I said to people was, if you're not talking about this with your family, you're part of the problem because you're mm-hmm. helping to keep the secret. Mm-hmm. I know. It's, it's funny. Even like I'm pretty open with money. Me and my husband are open with each other. But when it comes to me and my family, my parents never really talked about money. They, they would complain sometimes that they didn't have enough. And so that's why we couldn't do certain things. But that was... The extent of it, I didn't learn about money until I graduated university and moved out and had to figure out how to do money, basically. And I'm like, I don't want that for my kids. And I also want, you know, I have lots of friends who ask me about, how do I do this? How do I do that? And so I think this book is so great because 
so many people could just pick it up and find themselves in it and find some answers. And so one of the things I've tried to do is model the conversations people want to have with each other but can't find the words for. Yes. And so from helping your best friend to figure out how to make a budget to Mm -hmm. telling your roommate, you know what? You have money for a money and a petty. You need to come up with your fair share of the rent and on time. Okay? And telling your mom, hello, just because Susie keeps asking you to bail her out does not mean you have to keep bailing her out. You you know you're going to die, right? And I'm not taking on the job of bailing Susie out, so you better figure out how to get Susie on her own two feet. Mm-hmm. I definitely know quite a few friends and family members I'm going to send this book to. To <laughs> <laughs> be like, FYI, you might like yeah. this chapter. <laughs> In a nice way. <laughs> of course, of course. Um, yeah, one of the things that actually, like the other day, I was reading it, and I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to, I probably didn't pick the right time, so I probably didn't take all of your advice, but I just brought it up to my husband, because he is a freelancer, but I work a nine-to-five, and so we have very different kind of, incomes yeah. how they come in and out Results, and so yeah and it's it's very tricky because I'm obviously very strict with um, my budget and saving and he is not a saver he's more of a spender though he's still like he doesn't spend crazy but he doesn't have a budget and he doesn't track his spending and it drives me bonkers and so I tried to bring it up to him without being a nag though it did come off as nagging <laughs> Which led to a, a nice, it, it, eventually, it wasn't like the best conversation that started out, but it eventually led to a really good, deep conversation right. that came to like a good root about what we thought about, you know, how much we make and how we make it and what this means to each other. And then we kind of came to a better understanding of each other, which is awesome. Fabulous. So thank you for that. <laughs> and I think I might have, I think I may have figured out a, a good way for him to budget because he doesn't know like how much he makes per week or per month. But I told him, well, what I kind of do is I just have a checking account. Like, you know, besides all of your bills that you know you have to pay and everything, just give yourself like a certain amount of money that you can only spend every two weeks and stick to that. And yeah. can you do that? <laughs> uh, I'll have to follow up to see if he's actually doing well, that. You know, just uh, talked about it. One of the things I tell people who are living on a variable income is you have to get a month ahead of yourself. Yes. You have yeah. to do whatever it takes to get a month ahead of yourself so that the money you earn in March is the money you spend in April. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that way, you know exactly how much money you have. Exactly. Okay, and but if you, if you don't get there, then what happens is you're always trying to figure out, you know, am I going to have enough to make it till the end of the month? And that's a horrible way to live. Exactly, exactly. And um, I think um, one of the things that we kind of figured out when we were chatting was, he doesn't like thinking about money because when he thinks about money, it almost it's hard for him to focus on his work because his work is very dependent on networking and it's it's in the arts industry. So, yeah, so we kind of came to a, a like, I don't know, I think we kind of came up with a good strategy where he can think about money but then not think about it all the time so he doesn't right. worry about it. Right. Hopefully. Well, and the thing is, is that, you know, when people say they don't want to think about money, here's what I hear. I don't want anything getting in the way of me doing what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And because one of the things I say to people all the time is that, you know, people look at a budget and they see a pair of concrete shoes and they think to themselves, I'm never going to do that to myself. Mm-hmm. And I see my budget as something that's very liberating because I know exactly where I stand and I know exactly how much money I have to diddle around with. And so I know which ones are my wants and which ones are my needs. And uh, if there's something I really, really want, 
then, you know, I might give up two other wants in order to get that one want. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, it's this whole idea that you can't have it all at the same time. You can have mm-hmm. it all. Over time, you can have it all, but there's a timeline involved in it. You can't have it all at the same time. That's yeah. just so childish to think you can have it all at the same time. It's funny that you mention that because I feel like I've seen that somewhere a couple times recently and it's just been really dawning on me that, like, it's like, duh. Yes. But I have been, and I know lots of people probably my age too, are trying to strive for that, get everything all at the same time, which is impossible. And nor would you want everything at the same time. That seems very overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, so thanks so much for talking with me. I have uh, one or two more questions before I let you go. Sure. Um, one is because you d- do uh, have a book all about kind of helping millennials like me figure out how to do money properly, especially when they don't have much of a basis for it starting out. What would be, I guess, one of your one or two top tips that you would give for someone who is just graduating university and entering the workforce? Okay, so the first thing is you have to take a good hard look at your student loan situation mm-hmm. and make sure that if you have student loans, you're not defaulting to the student loan repayment system, which will have you in debt for 10 years and make you pay twice for that education. Mm-hmm. Okay, so people are under the impression that the student loan system gives you a deal on the interest rate. It's not. It's not a deal. They are capturing back the interest they did not charge you while you were in school, believe me. Mm-hmm. And so you do not want to take forever. I say if you have an undergrad degree, you should be getting rid of it in five years or less. Mm-hmm. If you have a master's degree, you should be working to get rid of it in seven years or less. And mm-hmm. if you have a professional degree, it might take you the 10 years, but then a professional degree is kind of like a mortgage. Yeah. Um, and hopefully there's a big fat income to come along with it. Let's uh, hope so. <laughs> the other thing is is that you need to track your money. It's yes. the single thing that will make a difference in people's management of their money is tracking what they're spending and posting it every month against the budget. So you need a budget mm-hmm. and you need a spending journal of some kind mm-hmm. so that every time you spend a cent, you write it down. Listen, I have been doing this my whole life. Mm-hmm. Okay, you ask me what I spent in 2007, I can find the spending journal and tell you what I spent in July oh 2007. Okay, I love that. And the thing is, is that it keeps me honest. There are mm-hmm. times when you are spending a lot of money and so your threshold for spending goes up. Okay, so a few years ago, I renovated my front yard. Okay, mm-hmm. it was a lot of money that I laid out over a couple of months. I got to September and looked at what I had spent for the previous two months and thought to myself, okay, you know what? Dropping $800 is like water off my back right now. Mm-hmm. So I put my, myself on an austerity plan. I moved an extra $1,000 out of my um, checking account mm-hmm. to savings and made myself live on $1,000 less that month hmm. so I could reset my clock. Reset Ooh, I like what that. I call, I call it um, your set point. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I reset my set point. It also happened in reverse to me. After my last husband and I split up, I blew through my emergency fund in no time flat. Mm-hmm. And then I went into retrench mode to try and rebuild the emergency fund 
And I realized, like three or four months in, I realized I was having no fun. Mm-hmm. Because all I was doing was sucking money away. So I put a line in my budget called pleasures. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I put $100 in. It's since gone up. But I put $100 in. And I had to spend that money. And so, you know, I buy myself tulips in the spring for, you know, the six weeks it takes for my buds to come up outside. Mm -hmm. I buy myself tulips once a week. Or uh, it it doesn't matter what the pleasure is. It had to be spent. And so what I was doing was I was resetting my set point. Mm -hmm. I like that. I like that a lot because then... You're allowing yourself to enjoy your money, but not going crazy, and you know where it's going. Absolutely. And the thing is, is that life is about enjoying what you can do with your money, and this is something that some people lose track of. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you have to put it back into perspective. Yes, you have to take care of the todays, and you have to set a little bit aside for the tomorrows. You have to make sure you have a little emergency fund. You have to make sure you have um, the right and enough of the insurance. Um, You have to... Do what you need to do. Set aside money for retirement. You need to do the detail. But mm-hmm. then you also need to be enjoying what your money can bring you. I had someone call me the other day, and, um, you know, they, they were in a quandary because they've always wanted a certain kind of car. Now, mm-hmm. I could care less about a car, okay? But mm-hmm. this is important to this person. And dreaming of it, saving the money, now that the money is there, there is this quandary because I could use this money for something else or I could use the money for the car. What should I do? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talked it through in terms of um, the, the lost opportunity for using that money elsewhere mm-hmm. versus the pleasure that would be derived on spending the money for the intended purpose, what it was saved for. Um, one of the questions I asked was, so how would you feel if you drove the car off the lot and 30 miles down the road it was written off? Mm-hmm. How would you feel about that? And the response was, you know what? It would be okay. And I went, all right, so you're fine. <laughs> you know, but if, if what you would do is you'd go, oh, what a waste, then maybe you're not ready for that. Exactly. So you have to ask yourself good questions, but you also have to remember that the point of earning all that money is to have some fun. Exactly. Don't be afraid to spend it. Exactly. But spend it smartly, if that's a word. (laughs) (laughs) Spend it consciously. Yes, Everybody's idea of smart is different. Exactly. And it's one of the challenges of personal finance is... Everybody's circumstance is completely different than everybody else's. And so using generalities never works. Mm -hmm. And it's a hard lesson for the personal financial arena to get Mm -hmm. because, you know, what happens is you bring your own bias to it and you, what you want to say is, this is what worked for me. You should do this too. But it may not work for them. Because their need, their driver, their motivation, their demons are all different. Mm -hmm. And so everyone has to figure it out for themselves. However, there are some basic rules everybody needs to follow. You know, you have to, you can't spend more money than you make. If you're spending more money than you make, you're headed for disaster. You have to save something. If you've accumulated any debt at all, you need an actual debt repayment plan as opposed to throwing money on it every month and hoping to God it goes away. And you Mm -hmm. need to take care of the what ifs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and once you have those down, you're pretty on the right track. Absolutely. 
Yeah. I was actually telling a friend the other day, um, we were talking about money on the subway and I'm like, what is something that you would like to learn more or, or something that you just you feel like you don't have a handle on? She's like, oh, I just, I don't know how much I should save for retirement. I'm really worried I won't have enough to retire on. And she's 30. <laughs> I'm like, you know, I think you're okay right now. It's really good that you're thinking about retirement, but I don't think you need to worry too much about the dollar as long as you are, you do have a plan and you're saving something. Well, and the, you know, and so the guidelines that I use for people is I tell people if they're in their 20s, they need, if they start in their 20s, they need to save 6%. If you start in mm-hmm. your 30s, you need to save 10%. Mm-hmm. And if you wait until you're in your 40s, you're going to have to save the RSP limit of 18%. Exactly. Uh, so start early enough so you exactly. only have to save 6%. Yeah. I'll tell her that. I'll, yeah. I'll email her right after this. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure she did start saving like right when she was like 22. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You know, so. that's when I started. I opened up my first RSP when I was 22 years old. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like I just, I've always just been conscientious about making sure I slide a little something, something aside for the future. Exactly. And for me, and yeah, I, I think I started kind of planning for retirement at about 25 and because I do that, I don't really worry about the future because I'm yeah. like, well, I've got a plan and I'm setting money aside and it'll be okay. That's exactly right. And it will yeah. be. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me, Gail. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you, ma'am. You're and welcome. go off and change the world, okay? Uh, I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> And that was episode 51 of the Mo Money podcast. Make sure to check out Gail's fabulous website. It has a lot of great resources, budget helpers, anything you can think of at gailfazoxlade.com. I'll also include some, uh, you know, links and things that we talked about in the show notes for this episode, which you, of course, can check out at jessicamorehouse.com slash 51. And of course, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, this was brought to you by the awesome Wealth Simple, the fastest growing automated investing service in Canada. And if you want to learn more about them and how you can start investing today, well, all you have to do is go check out the show notes or visit wealthsimple.com slash Jessica Morehouse, where you will get a special $50 bonus when you sign up. And one last link before I let you go, as I mentioned a couple of times on the show, next week is my one year anniversary of the Mo Money podcast. And it's also my birthday week, which is pretty cool. So I'm going to be doing a special solo episode and also be doing a couple giveaways. I'm going to be giving away a couple awesome prizes. So make sure to check back here next Wednesday for that episode. And if you just want to make sure you don't miss it, either subscribe on iTunes or subscribe to my mailing list at jessicamoros.com slash subscribe. See you back here next Wednesday. This podcast is distributed by the Women in Media Podcast Network. Find out more at womeninmedia.network.